0: Uh, okay, so here we are. Today is the very first episode of LGO TV Big Talk. And I don't know if I'm going to keep calling it that or not, because I'm terrible at naming things. So <laughs> I would love your ideas on how to name this better. But here's the deal. I hate small talk. I hate it, hate it, hate it. I'm constitutionally incapable of it. And my guest today, who is there, there we go, over there is my friend Rahaf Harfoush, And she and I met because another one of our mutual friends connected us. And when that friend connected us, we ended up having coffee in LA. I was in LA. She was in LA. I live in Boston. She lives in France. And it was like, wait, you're in LA. I'm in LA. Let's get together. And we immediately got together with another friend of mine, Mitch Matthews, who then we've all become friends. And we just went straight into the biggest talk I've ever had. But the first time I've met somebody and we became fast friends. So I wanted to start this today with Rahaf because I know that you're going to love her. I know that you're going to think she's super interesting. So just very quickly, I hate when people read my bio, so I'm not going to read your whole bio and make you crazy. But Rahaf is a digital anthropologist, which might be the coolest title I've ever heard from anybody anywhere. And what she does is she focuses on Intersections Between Emerging Technology, Innovation, and Digital Culture. She's the executive director of a consulting firm uh, that she calls the Red Thread Institute of Digital Culture, and she teaches innovation and emerging business models um, at at different schools uh, in Paris. She's working on her fourth book. Her last book, which is behind me here, is called Hustle and Float. Super interesting, really great. And um, we're going to talk all about this today. So, Rahaf, welcome. Thank you for being my first guinea pig.
1: Man, anytime you call, conversation (laughs) with you. I'm just like, I'm there. Don't even need to ask twice. Just send me the link.
0: So what Rahaf and I do is every Monday morning, we at 9 a.m. my time, I guess early afternoon, your time. Yeah, three. At at three. um, So it's kind of cocktail hour for you. we, (laughs) we, We have conversations and we talk about everything that's going on in the world. And our conversations have included everything from K-pop to Michael Jordan, to empowerment, to politics, to, you know, growing up, you know, in, in, in Miami to, to, to being born in Syria and, and moving to Canada. So I wanted to, I wanted to give people a sneak peek of that conversation. And I wanna start by asking you a really just like, a question that I get asked a lot and I never quite have an answer to, and you're so smart. I wanna know what your answer is. Why do, you, why do you write? Of all the ways you could express yourself, why do you write? Why is that the thing that where it has to come out of you?
1: I mean, you, you weren't joking, calling it big talk. You just, we just, we're just going right we're to like going. the whole core of my being. Yes. Um. Okay. Why do I write? I write because I can't not write mm. uh, because it is the way that my brain works. I, I learn best when I writing helps me work through things. It helps me organize my feelings. It helps me process what I've learned it helps me explore new worlds and new ideas it stimulates my creativity my when I'm upset I write when I'm happy I write when I'm sad I write it's it's I have put it this way I don't remember a time when I wasn't writing something and I just can't not do it it would it would kill i think a, a part of my spirit that just needs to express it and express it for me right whether anyone else reads it or not has become irrelevant i just need to do it for me
0: so i love that you said you write when you're when you're happy you write when you're upset i have i have learned about myself that i have this governor in my head that says don't write it that way, write it this way, edit as you're writing, maybe use this word, no, that's not a good enough idea. And I found that, and maybe this is like the Steve Ballmer, you know, principle, like, you know, write drunk, <laughs> and edit sober, um, or write just drunk enough. Um, I find that when I'm maybe a little tipsy, or maybe I'm super upset about something, or I'm like full of rage, or I'm just so like, I'm just so distraught that, I, or maybe so elated, like it just the words pour out of me, in that moment in a way that I can't stop them and I can't govern them and I actually find that when I'm either like 70% of myself or 120% of myself, I write way better than when I'm just a hundred percent myself. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, I think what you're doing is sometimes you have to write so fast that your little governor guy can't keep up. And I do something similar where I use a methodology called fast draft. And fast draft is like, is acknowledging that the first draft is just going to be terrible. And you go so fast because you're just trying to get it out on the page. So you you might write something like, uh, okay, and then the most important thing is, Uh, X, literally write X and then put brackets and say, this is what I wanted to say right here and then keep going. And the trick is, is you're trying to go so fast that that little voice in its head, that's going to try to criticize that word or that punctuation or this thing. It's like, no, you're going too fast. And then once you get it out on the page, like then it's, it's, it's out of you. uh, And then you can kind of go back and do it because somebody once told me, and I love this is that a first draft is just you telling the story to yourself, and so we put so much pressure on making it perfect, but like, it can't be perfect. It's just like a baby idea. We're just, it's the first step into, into, into existence. And so um, I fast draft, I will set a timer for 90 minutes and then I will just write, you know, and just try to get it out as fast as possible. And then knowing that you can always go back later and fix and polish and spend 20 minutes about this comma or that word, but that comes later.
0: Okay, 90 minutes. So I've become a fan of the Pomodoro method, which is like 25 minutes. And then you get up and you get a snack in 25 minutes. Yeah. And then you get up and get a snack. So my writing has gotten better, but my waistline has gotten worse. <laughs> <laughs> 90, talk, talk to me about 90 minutes. That's that is an incredible amount of focus. How do you do for that's minutes? like my,
1: t- that, that's just my performance, like that is just my performance cycle. So your performance cycle, there's no right and wrong, like your performance cycle is 25 minutes and anything more than 25 minutes is not, is not going to be helpful for you. I find that I need time to really get into it and to just get into the zone. So it takes me like, if the whole period might be two hours, because it takes me 30 minutes to just be like, well, you know, what am I doing? And then it's like, go and then I need that time because I tried the 25 minutes and it was too short. I wasn't grappling with the concept enough. But after 90 minutes, I definitely need to take a bit of a break. And then I'll do another 90 minutes and then I'll take like a extended an extended break.
0: Yeah, when when my when my kids were little, I wrote my first book and my husband was like, I'll just take the kids all day Saturday and you can write all day Saturday. And he'd come home after being like, going to like the children's museum and then going to lunch and then going to the science museum and then taking you to a park. And he was exhausted and he'd come home and he'd be like, did you write a lot of words? And I'm like, yeah, I wrote about 3000 words. And he was like, I gave you the whole day. And I'm like, I just, after a certain amount of time, all that comes out of my brain is just like, meh. Like I reach in for words and there are no words there. And I know you know this feeling because I know that this happened to you after you finished the Decoded Company book tour, right? You were on book tour, you were speaking, you were traveling, you were consulting, and then you came home and you tried to write and there was like nothing in the void where words usually sit.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny because, and we'll, we'll talk about about productivity metrics, but like we have this idea of the eight you know our work day, which is just a total arbitrary number, but you know you if you can write three thousand words, like three thousand words is amazing. Sometimes they tell words. you to try for five. It doesn't matter. It doesn't <laughs> matter. You got three thousand words. Right. You know Stephen King used to write two thousand words every day. Um, sometimes they'll tell you like five. Aim for five hundred words. Mm. Like the idea that we're somehow going to spend eight hours like cognitively in the writing zone is just like completely ludicrous. Um, and, you know, I say that with absolute certainty, like it's just not it's just not possible. It's not how our brains work.
0: So does this lead to the idea of the useless class that you write about in your book where like we, we work these days because we think we're supposed to work these days. And then we have this martyrdom to busyness because we think we have to be busy. And if we're not busier than the other person, then maybe we're not working hard enough.
1: Yeah. I mean, so hustle and float was is pretty much, I tried to figure out and tried to tell the story that we are telling each other about work but also about success about who gets to be successful what you have to do to be successful and I started realizing that we have these like beliefs that we hold you know that we have to be hardworking or that we have to put in long days that we have to do all of these things but at some point along the way we started like prioritizing and worshiping productivity just for the sake of productivity. And then it became working hard for the sake of working hard and less about working towards something. And people were just happy that they were busy instead of being like, oh, this is getting me closer to my goal or versus not close to my goal. And now I feel like we fill our days because somewhere we were told that this eight hour day is what you're supposed to be doing. And we push ourselves constantly for this metric, for this data point that is absolutely unrelated to the way creativity works and the way that the brain works. Eight hours a day was made for manual labor. It was made for people working on assembly lines. It was never made for creatives. It was never made for people that make ideas and stories and research and strategies and concepts like and yet we're like hey Laura i'm going to just judge you and your creative output by the exact same metric that we used to use for people building cars on an assembly line cool and you're it's, like yeah okay i'm just going to make myself crazy and it's
0: like what yeah it's such nonsense when i when i ran my last company we had we had 30 staff all over the world and people would be like i don't understand how do you manage them how do you judge the quality of their work we were like by the quality of their work Like it had nothing to do with how many hours. And if somebody could get the work done in two hours and then take the rest of the day off, great. If they could get the work done in 10 hours and that was their day, that was their day. But it was about the quality of the work at the end of the day. And I just I couldn't understand why people couldn't like people who had MBAs, like they couldn't wrap their head around the fact that you literally like it's you judge the quality of the work by the quality of the work. And that's it.
1: Well, we have been so brainwashed to, so, okay, we're gonna just a slight tangent, so much of the way that we talk about performance and productivity was pulled from the industrial revolution. And what that means is that for the bulk of it, we were measuring things that we could see. So we were measuring the fact that I could see you working because I could see you building widgets or building cars. So over time, we developed this cultural norm where if I couldn't see you working, it meant that you weren't working. But when you bring in creative work, a lot of the creative process. So when you sit down to write and you're actually putting words. To paper. That is the tail end. That is the visible part of a process that actually has a lot of steps that were invisible. You thinking about it, you mulling over it, you trying to figure it out, you reading, you read, like stuff that isn't easy to see. And all we do is we care about the visible part. And so you have all these companies that are like, well, if we can't see you, then you must not be working. So then people, what do they do? They fill their days with meetings, with back to back calls, they try to be visible. But so much of creative work is intangible you can't see it so how are we expecting ourselves to measure like minutes and hours and days when that time doesn't even make sense like as a metric and so i always ask people whenever they tell me like oh you know how you're doing this or doing that it's like well Think of how much of your process is invisible, because when you're creative, you never really stop working. Right. When, when you, all you're doing is kicking your ideas from your conscious to your unconscious, from your conscious mind, to your unconscious mind. So when you're gardening, you're still mulling ideas over when you're walking your dog. You're still like, hmm, what's this idea with like that's all part of the work. But we just don't have systems that recognize that.
0: Yeah, I just, my I, I, I don't have the ideas that when I'm gardening. I have the ideas at three in the morning. That's when the hobgoblins come to play and they're like, <laughs> oh, here's some ideas. And then I start dreaming of like myself on stage speaking the ideas or maybe I'm at my mm-hmm. desk writing the ideas. And then I wake up and I say to myself, oh, that was really good. I'm going to write that down tomorrow. And then I but that's part forget of the <laughs> and I don't write it down. So so from like I tell people that it took me, you know, six weeks to write Limitless. But the truth is it really took me 25 years and six weeks because I was like coming up with it. And I describe my writing process as it's like you're circling a house and you're going around and around and around, and you can see the kitchen table from the window over the sink, and you can see the TV from the window by the sofa, and you can see, you know, what's happening. Uh, you know, in the garage, if there's like the little windows in the garage, you can see what kind of cars there are. But it's not until you find the front door that you can like go in and explore. And for me, I find that I like I'm casing the joint for like 25 years. So for me, it takes it takes time. And I think I think that people can't write right now because we stop teaching people how to think. And I think some of the reaction that we have on social media is is like the quick reaction. And, you know, how many times have you seen people that share articles on social media that you know, they haven't even read, right? It's like, it's just like Mm -hmm. quick, 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 but it's not the depth of thinking. And I wonder how you think if we had the industrial revolution and then, you know, we've had so many different revolutions in our workplace, how do you think that I'm going to call it the COVID revolution for lack of a better term right now, but how do you think that's going to affect the way that we have to play the game you know you have to like show up and have you know facetime in order to be seen as the person who's working is that going to change the way that we try to, to to get ahead and and i and i ask that question both for like you know straight cisgendered white men but also for you know women and people of color lgbtq that are that have been harder for them to like get in the you know get in the get in the lane
1: I don't think it's going to change. And I'll tell you why. I actually think we're going to go in the wrong direction because we're starting to see companies now using things like, um, you know, uh, keystroke tracking and uh, really detailed time tracking. And like when you look at that. This goes back to what I was saying to you about the visibility. It goes back to trust. This has never been a technology issue. This has always been a management lack of trust issue where Hmm. at some level, bosses think if I can't see you, you're going to be messing around. And this is something that is so profoundly embedded in the way that we create work culture today that this is why. So then what do people do? Well, then they say, I have to be, I'm working from home. My boss can't see me. I have to be extra visible. I'm going to send twice as many emails. I'm going to be all over the Zooms. I'm going to be all over Slack. But what that actually does is it creates all this additional noise that then everybody else has to process. It's not that we're not even giving ourselves time to think, which is a big problem. We have created a culture where we have internalized this idea that any time not spent doing something is a waste. Mm -hmm. Any time spent not doing visible, productive work is a waste. But what our brains need is this period of time, time when you're not stimulated, time when you're not looking at your phone, time when you can just think. And I read this book a long time ago. It was called The Happiness Hypothesis. It was by Jonathan Haidt. And he was talking about the mind's incredible capacity to process information that you're not even aware of. So your brain filters all of these things that your brain decides, is this important enough to bring to Laura's attention, or she doesn't need to know about this. And what you can do with that is that you can say, so for example, if I said to you right now, look at everything around you that's yellow, immediately, immediately, your brain reorganizes all the information and you immediately see things that are yellow, right? So what you can do with your brain is when you're when you're in these like subconscious when you're not actively working on something is you can say, I really need to solve this problem. And you just say to your brain, I really want to find the solution to this problem. And then you let it go and your brain will bring things to your attention that you might not have considered before. It's why if you're thinking of going on vacation, suddenly you start seeing all of these ads or you you start, you know, a friend drops off a book that uh, you know, is about the place that you want to go and you think, "Oh, like, you know, that's magic." But it's not. It's just that your brain is prioritizing those ideas. So if you want to come up with ideas, you have to throw that intention out there so that your brain can start sorting through and reassess what's important and what's not. And that's where innovation comes from. It doesn't come from staring at your screen, doing the same thing, being exhausted. It comes from saying, hey, like I'm going to take in all the stimulus and I'm going to trust my brain process to make new connections and to prioritize things that I need to see. And I have learned to trust this process because I will I will say something like, I'll I'll give you a really random example. I was working on a, a fiction story. Okay. So I write fiction in my spare time. And I'm working on the story and I couldn't figure out it was, it has superpowers in it. And it was like, it was all the stuff. And there was this one part of it that I was like, I just couldn't figure out from an abilities perspective. I was like, I can't figure this out. So I just was like, I just need to think about it. And I literally said to myself, okay, I need to, I need to figure out how to make this character thing work. And then I stopped thinking about it. And two days later on Netflix, this documentary was suggested to me about mushrooms, like just mushrooms and how incredible <laughs> they are. My
0: and I watched this documentary. That works. <laughs> it's
1: actually so interesting. They're actually so interesting. We won't get on a tangent about mushrooms, but you know, just like the way that they are interconnected and the way that they work with nature and the way that they work with decay. But anyway, a part of the way that they worked, I like sat up and I was like, that's it. That is the thing that I was looking for. And I went and I got my piece of paper and I wrote it all down. But like, I would have never known that that was important if I didn't give my brain the chance to bring me what's important. So you have to trust that process.
0: So I'm going to leave the dark prophecy about how work is going in the wrong direction, Back there because that's just <laughs> bad and horrifying. And I'm going to focus on mm-hmm. mushrooms. <laughs> but, but I, I think what you also just did is you unpacked for us the secret to why the secret works, right? All the manifestation, all the people that are like, if you just believe it's going to happen, and if you can manifest your future and all that stuff. I think you just unpacked the science behind why those things happen, right? It's giving yourself permission to start noticing opportunities. And I think that, you know, I've, I've always thought that, you know, hard work um, and timing and, you know, luck and all of that play into it. So I think that's part of the success equation that you talk about a little bit. And so I want to hear more about the success equation, because I think we have this belief that some people are just born lucky, but it may be that some people have trained themselves to pay attention for opportunity.
1: Yeah. And I i mean, the manifesting thing is something that is so interesting because in this book, The Happiness Hypothesis, Jonathan Haidt gives this example where he says, why is it that like a new mom who has a a baby, her baby is sleeping next door, she'll hear a door slam and not wake up. She'll hear a car backfire and not wake up. But if that baby makes any sound, she's up. And this is the thing, like, I think we're only now just learning about how much of our brain and how our brains can actually like are so much more powerful than we think they are. And that our subconscious absorbs everything. This is why we'll talk about this. Your thoughts are so important. The statements you say to yourself are so important because they become your beliefs and then your beliefs end up forming your worldview. So when you wanna manifest something, it's really just telling your brain, hey, I'm prioritizing the filtering and I'm, I'm prioritizing what information is important. So if I say to myself, I really am looking for new project opportunities, I'm really and I just let that go in the back of my head, that's still running. It's like you program an algorithm and then that algorithm is still running. And then as all this information is coming in, you might see a post on LinkedIn that will catch your attention because something in your brain says, hey, this is a priority one, you know, knowledge for you. And I think this is important when you talk about like success, because So much of it is luck and timing. So much of it is instinct and intuition. And hard work is a part of this equation. Like working hard is important. Of course, it's important. But it's not the only thing. There's all these other factors that have to line up as well. And sometimes we talk about these successful CEOs and we say, look how successful they are and look how much they work. But like there's so much other stuff. And I was talking to a friend of mine the other day about um, Outliers, you know, Malcolm Gladwell's yeah. book. I don't know if you read that one, but his whole hypoth- like the whole thesis of that book is that successful people work hard, but they also had serendipity and timing and luck. So Bill Gates was a hard worker, yes. But he was also lucky enough to go to, to to be born into a family that had the means to send him to the, to a good university and that the lucky enough that the university had state-of-the-art computing resources that he could use and you know so it was all these other things that lined up. But if you were to ask people what they remember most from outliers, most people will tell you that they remember the fact that you need 10,000 hours for mastery. That's the thing that clicks for them. They ignored everything else, the luck, the serendipity, the timing, the connections, the privilege, the the birth lottery, all of that they put to the side and they said, well, they're successful because they put in 10,000 hours. And so I want What I'm trying to do with my work is for people to expand their equation and to say, okay, you've got the hard work down. Great. Do you have the imagination and discovery part down? Do you have the exploration part down? Are you taking advantage of serendipity and timing? Are you taking advantage of your mental processes and your belief systems? Because all of those things also have a direct impact on your success.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So so talk to me about, let's go back to after the Decoded Company and before Hustle & Float where your hair is falling out. <laughs> Let's talk about where you were Lynch. reaching, yeah, where you were reaching into the Let's revisit that, horrible revisit that trauma. Oh, <laughs> because I want to know, I, did, how did you get out of it? Did you get out of it by, by 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 you know, researching Beyonce and figuring out that she had hustle and float and then you, you saw those there? Or did you, did you tell yourself that it was going to be better. And, and, and like what for people that are in this space right now where they're like, I don't really know, I'm totally lost. I'm not really sure. I feel overwhelming stress, overwhelming anxiety. How do I, you know, even think about potential opportunity? You were like, this was your lowest point and you had to like climb out of the well. Like how, how did you get yourself there?
1: I mean, I hit rock bottom, like I really hit rock bottom. And there came a point in time where as somebody who really identified with their job and ambition, and I was really proud of the fact that I had this career that I had worked so hard for, uh, there came a point where that just wasn't there anymore. And in the book, I talk about the how much it shook my foundations to be a writer that couldn't write. So here I was my entire life identifying as a writer and all of a sudden for the first time in my life, there were no words. And that was absolutely, I I mean, I cannot overemphasize the depth of despair that I felt, how scared I was, how, how lost I was, how I really thought that I had broken a piece of me that was me and we, I, the way I worked through it was at some point, and this sounds really dramatic, but like in the moment it really it really felt quite dramatic. Oh, but at I'm some sure point I had to I had to be okay with the fact that that voice might never come back. And so I sort of had to face the question, who was I if I wasn't a writer? And that really forced me to face my ego and my need for validation and my need for peer recognition and my need to, to, to be seen as successful. And to get to a point through a lot of work where I as just myself was enough, where it's just me, if I never wrote another word in my life that I would still have value as a human being. And once I started putting those blocks together, then the healing became a lot easier because I wasn't so tied to the grief of, of losing this part of me that I thought was so important. And ironically it was when I let that go and it was when I became okay with just being me, that that was when, the words started coming back. And that experience was what taught me, like when I started asking questions, because I I thought to myself like, well, how did I get here? Like, where did this belief come from? Where did this ego, where did this need to be associated with doing come from? And like, that's when I started researching, well, you know, where where does productivity come from? Where did our understanding of creativity comes from? How do we talk about productivity and creativity and culture? And then I started looking at who are the people that we admire? So Beyonce was somebody that we always, all of us like sort of hold up on this pedestal as the epitome of successful creatives, right? She was a creative that was able to generate tremendous wealth and that that was the American dream. And when we talked about Beyonce, we only talked to her about, um, we only talked about how hard she works. And so I was like, well, where do these stories come from? And it was only by, understanding the origins of the stories that I was able to sort of free myself from them. So I don't know. I think I think um, I have come to believe that the most important work that every one of us has to do is to understand ourselves and to understand the stories that we tell ourselves to unpackage our own beliefs, our own expectations, our own vulnerabilities, our own hurts, our own relationships with work ethics and with who and with what we think success looks like in order to judge as to whether or not, um, as to whether or not those beliefs still serve us and help us get closer to our goals. Or whether they're actually hurting us, as it was in my case, and taking us further away from the type of life that we wanted to lead. Okay, so apparently, uh, Laura just messaged me and her internet just went down, which is fine because we're just going to wait for her to come back. But I thought I would take this time since I had your attention to kind of continue On uh, some of this theme of the type of work that we could do and some of the stuff that she was talking about in terms of like manifesting. Oh, there she is. She's back.
0: Oh my God. Thank you for keeping it going. My internet. I was like, we're going to, we're
1: doing it live. (laughs) I was like, I'm going to just start talking about manifesting and mushrooms and K pop and we're just going to wait for her to return.
0: Yeah, my internet literally just went down in the middle of this beautiful sunny day. It happens. Yeah.
1: Oh. This is the joys of technology, you're frozen again, and I can't hear you or see you. Anyway, let me tell you, this documentary on Netflix about mushrooms is wild. One, I had no idea that mushrooms were so crazy. I had no idea that they were such an important part of the ecosystem. I had no idea that they had all these health benefits and health properties. And it was something that I had just, it was like a whole area of expertise that I had zero idea about. I've never heard of it. I never knew that there were people that dedicated their whole lives to studying mushrooms. And it's really interesting. And I think that if you're looking for ways to add inspiration or to add or find new ideas in your own life, you have to like take a chance on things that I call like non-adjacent subject matter. So things that like you normally wouldn't, Be interested in, because you just never know. And to give everything a chance and to really watch a documentary all the way through, even if at the end you think it was terrible, even if at the end you don't agree with a lot of it, it doesn't matter, right? It's just more input. And it's just like more good stuff that then you could use to make these connections. And so I try to explore parts of the web and um, different parts of culture that I don't know a lot about I think about it like being a digital tourist and it's like have I been to this neighborhood before do I know who these people are that's my phone which I will ignore it's my mom she's probably calling to say hello um but yeah so I think it's so important for you to to go out there and then people always say to me like oh well you're interested in so many different diverse things but I think like that's what you have to be because the the world is moving so fast and innovation is moving so fast that the more connected you are to different people, different ideas, different segments of the population, different theories, then the more you have this ability to kind of like put these ideas together in an interesting way. And so one of the things that I love to do is I love to go onto Google and click the I'm feeling lucky button or there are all these uh, internet sites online that create random link generators and like just go somewhere new because what many of us don't realize is that so many of the tools that we use today like our social media and all of our um, like yeah all of the, our our google searches and everything they're all connected and they're all controlled by algorithms up oh, there she's back welcome back We're just talking about algorithms. Talk about (laughs)
0: algorithms. Are you talking about K-pop? Did we move on to K-pop? I was
1: trying to like make the connection to K-pop. Yes. why it's, yeah. I mean, I was just telling people that they should act like digital tourists and always try to go to new places online and like find places and generate, like go to find a place that generates links randomly and then just like go and check it out. Even if you have no idea, even if it seems really weird or dumb at the beginning. So that's how I discovered like so many random places and things.
0: Okay, here's what I want to know. What is the weirdest okay. thing you have found on the internet? <laughs> like the weirdest. Okay. <laughs> the weirdest
1: thing that, well, there's a lot of really weird things, but one of the things that I find really interesting is that, um, <laughs> there is this thing in fandoms called tin hatting. So like wearing a tin hat. Okay. And what that means is that, so, so say you have a fandom and I'll use the most recent example for the show Outlander, right? Like a, there's tin, a, show- hat,
0: like a tin hat yeah. where you're trying to get like, like UFOs to come in. Yeah. Tin hat? Yeah. Okay.
1: yeah. And this is a very specific part of a fandom where they believe like the people in this who are tin hatters within this fandom believe without a shadow of a doubt that like the two main actors of a show are actually engaged in a secret relationship And that there's a big conspiracy, even if they're married to other people, even if they're obviously not together, that there's this big conspiracy that they have to hide their relationship. And then everything that happens becomes like a secret signal. It's like, oh, well, you see, he posted that blue cup and she was wearing a blue necklace. That's a message to each other, you know, that they're celebrating their love. And these people get like conspiracy theory to the max, but it's a conspiracy theory about two actors that are clearly not together in a show. And so when you go into it, it's like-
0: I I watch Outlander. Oh, there you go. Because I know it's soft porn for soccer moms, but they do have a lot of chemistry. So (laughs) they do.
1: And Outlander, (laughs) listen, Outlander is an amazing show. I love the books. Outlander is a great show. But my point is, is that there are people that believe that the actors that play Jamie and Claire are together in real life. And not just together in real life, but there is a massive conspiracy to hide their relationship. So, you know, the actress that plays Claire, I don't know their real name, but the actress that plays Claire, it's like she posted this picture at this time. But he posted this picture and his girlfriend who he's with. Well, she's actually an actress. That's been like it really gets into some bizarre. And I find that really interesting because I'm interested by any by anything that someone has decided to invest a lot of their time in. If you're yeah. investing a lot of your time and if it's important to you, I'm interested and I want to know all about it. And that's sort of been the guiding like the like, I've always called myself like I'm a fan of fans. You know what I mean? I love when people are so interested and are passionate about something. And I whether it's conspiracy theories, whether it's K-pop, whether it's um, you know like uh, book fandoms, whether it's like weird science or what, whatever it is. If you're really into it, like I want to know why. And I think that's just been sort of the driving force of my work.
0: So what? 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 Like what? Is the thing that that like what's the hurdle someone has to go over or the Rubicon they have to cross through that gets them from going to like a casual observer to a fan to like a stan, like a super fan? Like what is the like what's is it is it like mental illness? <laughs> like is it is no! it like insecurity? is it loneliness and finally being seen by the person? Is it like and I don't say like mental illness is a joke. I mean I'm I'm like, you know, there's like a like an obsessive uh, personality, right? Like what is the thing? Where somebody just becomes such a super fan.
1: Okay, so there's a couple. You're
0: things. talking like um, hours and hours of your day, like going deep into subreddits about like conspiracy theory type stuff. Like,
1: yeah, about but I mean, so conspiracy theories are one thing. I think fandoms are really interesting because. Okay, one, any fandom is just like a reflection of our society, which sort of means there's you're going to have people that are going to engage in toxic behavior and you're going to have people that are going to engage in altruistic behavior and you cannot categorize like a fandom as like it is this or that. Every fandom has its tin hatters, every fandom has its toxic fans, so that just kind of exists everywhere. What I think it is, is that for so long, culture, whether it was a book or a movie or a show, was something that you kind of consumed by yourself. And then maybe you talked about it with your friends or you had a group mm-hmm. of people over and you talked about it. But what technology did and what social media did, and Clay Shirky talked about this in his book, Cognitive Surplus, is it gave us the ability to engage with that content and in a way, like take ownership of it. So when people wrote fan fiction, it was them saying, I love this place so much that I want to add my own twist. I want to engage with these characters. I want to talk about this world with other people that love this world. I want to live in it. You want to live in it, you know, and you know, for for some, for example, like to find a community of people that so passionately love characters, I think that's so great. And I was recently reading a couple of uh, uh papers that were written by neurologists that were talking about how our brains can't actually differentiate between say a character and a real person. So when you fall in love with a character in a book, your brain lights up in the same way that if you were actually falling in love with a real person, which is why some people don't understand why like a character death could be so absolutely devastating, but it's because psychologically a part of our brains has actually like made an emotional connection with this fictional character. So I think it gave people um, refuge, especially if you have series where people come together and, you know, if they feel lonely in their lives, it's a way to connect. Maybe they live in a town or maybe they don't have any friends that share those same interests. And to go online and to find a vibrant community where you can channel that creativity, you can make art and you can react and you can respond and you can talk about it and you can theorize about it. I mean, it's, it's a way it adds, it elevates the level, it elevates the enjoyment of content and makes it a community. So when we talk about an episode of The Last Dance, when we talk about it, I enjoy it even more because you watched it, I watched it. We get to talk about it. Somebody's going to go make a meme about it. It's gonna—it just extends the way that you can enjoy content, and it adds a sense of ownership that I think is 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 really great. It's a way for you to engage with ideas on an emotional level, and I love that. And I love how passionately fans are about it. I don't love toxic fan behavior, but you know, you you have to sort of take the good with the bad.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting because, you know, growing up, um, I remember like if you weren't home <clears throat> at 8 p.m. to see, you know, whatever the half hour sitcom was that was on that night, you went back to school the next day and everyone's talking about it and you were left out. And so yeah. it's like everyone can be a part of this now in this way where where people feel much more included and have much more of a voice. So um, speaking of having more of a voice, why, like, why the K-pop stands with Trump? Like, why like, of all the people that they could focus on, of all the people that might want to focus on bringing down Donald Trump, why, like, why, why the K-pop stands? I don't. I explain that. Explain that fandom to me.
1: Okay, so there are a couple. <laughs> of, <laughs> so there are a couple of 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 events that sort of happened that need to create the context, okay? So for a really long time, when we looked at digital communities, we looked at communities and we said they were just on a specific platform and communities tended to like stick to themselves. So the K-pop community is pretty insular and you know, uh, the Harry Potter fandom is pretty insular. and Everyone's just in their own little digital region and neighborhood and sticking with their own. What's happened is that social media, whether it's Instagram or TikTok, has created channels of communication between digital regions. So, for example, the K-pop stands on TikTok have a really good relationship with certain people on Twitter. So it's creating these, like, communication platforms that didn't exist before because communities used to stick to themselves. And I call these now coalitions because you have, like... The K-pop fandom, which is a which is a tribe and like a digital region that's made up of tons of little groups that each love, and, you know, you have BTS's army and you have um, you know, the like the I Got Seven fandom, and every fandom has a little name. So they're all these little neighborhoods within a region. But then you have all these other communities that are, you know, that that were organizing around the Black Lives Matter movement. And what happened was this communication, all of a sudden, content was crossing borders. And this was a message, you know, sort of that serendipitous time. It just sort of hit a part of attention where everyone, it felt like the whole world was watching. Maybe it was because of the pandemic and more people were at home. More people were consuming media. Maybe like there's a whole list of reasons, but it captured people's attention. And so when people said when all of a sudden we started to see things like um, the police brutality that was happening at rallies, don't forget, these footages were being captured online, shared online. People got really upset. And this fandom, so K-pop fandoms, and I talk about this a little, um, I have a digital series called Yes We Stand, uh, called uh, Yes We Stand, called United We Stand. Um, And what happened was those fandoms, you have to understand K-pop fandoms have like one, one job, is they're constantly demonstrating how much they love their group and they're flexing their social capital, their social power. And they do this by getting hashtags to trend. So for example, BTS, which is like arguably the biggest boy band in the world right now, uh, when their fourth album came out, Map of the Soul, their fan base generated like in, in 48 hours something like, you know, like 20 million tweets about them. And it was trending worldwide, not only trending worldwide, it was charting number one in like every single iTunes store in the world. So, OK, so like th- we're talking about numbers, so I don't know if you know, but like they recently had a live um, virtual event called Bang Bang Con where they did a um a virtual concert they charge tickets and over the weekend they earn 26 million dollars from a virtual content so like they so we're talking about a business model here but so army which is what bts's fandom is called they're called army uh they have scale they're super coordinated super connected they're imagine them almost like telephone trees right one person raises the flag and it just goes pff, viral so what they decided was they were they so they have all the capabilities to take a hashtag and to make it trending. They have such a, a collective force. So what was so amazing was you had a bunch of different K-pop fandoms, not just ARMY. You had like Shiny and BLACKPINK and you had Seventeen and all these different groups that came together using these like telephone trees. And they said, we are going to hijack particular. Um, we are going to hijack particular uh, hashtags. In which white lives matter. We're going to flood it with K-pop fan cams and, and pictures and gifts because we want to drown out the messages of hate. We're also not going to promote our own stuff so that we can let the Black Lives Matter tag be amplified, which is huge. Because remember, there's always competitions about who has the most power. Mm. And then they started saying, okay, well, now we're going to flood the police apps with fan cams and we're going to like jam their lines and do all of this stuff. And I think it was just people didn't understand And they came in and people were like, why this community? But this community already had all the digital competencies that were designed to help them reach maximum scale. Their entire regular in regular times, their entire jobs are to get things trending. So they just took all of those digital skills and they just shifted focus. And they did this as an act of solidarity. They also did this because BTS made a statement uh, in favor of Black Lives Matter. BTS donated $1 million to the cause, a number that was matched by their fans in under 24 hours. So they are, and I mean, we can, we can spend hours talking about this, but the thing about K-pop is like fandoms in South Korea are, are much more rigorously organized than the way that we see fandoms in North America here. Right. There is engagement to join the fan group, like the official fan club. You have to answer quiz questions. You have to know members' birthdays. You have to know when the band was formed. You have to know inside jokes. You know, there are fan chants that you're expected to learn. There is behaviors. There's ways that you're expected to show up. It's like very. It's very structured, but that structure allowed them to organize and mobilize on a massive scale. So they just turned all that those capabilities and they said this hashtag and now this hashtag and they just killed it. And they did that because and then through the Black Lives Matter hashtags, they were forming relationships with people on Instagram, people on TikTok. So it created this coalition where when Anonymous said, guys, the Great Awakening hashtag is trending and it's really racist. If you see in Anonymous's tweet, they said K-pop stands, Swifties, which are Taylor Swift's yep. fans, believers, yep. which are just, they called all these fandoms. And the crazy thing is, is all these fandoms pulled up. And this is what's new is that it's it's we've never seen like cross fandom coordination against a social justice, social justice issue to the scale before. But so but you like to understand it, you have to understand that on a normal day, on a normal day, if you look at Twitter, there'll be one or two K-pop things trending because that's just regular fandom activities.
0: So it's so interesting to me because I remember watching. I mean, you know, I'm. I would not say that I'm a Swifty, but I listen to a lot of Taylor Swift because my younger son is a Uh, Swifty. And I, and, and, you know, I mean, she's incredibly talented. She's a great songwriter. She's a great singer. Um, She's, I can't talk about her dancing because if there's anyone on earth who dances worse than her, it is me. Uh, but I did watch the documentary, you know, her her, her—the documentary that she produced. Uh, and I was so fascinated by the part of it where she talked about how she wanted to get active. She wanted to endorse uh, somebody who was running for Senate. She wanted to tell people to go out and vote. And her parents and her agent were like, don't do it. Like, don't do it. It's going to be terrible. You're going to lose fans. And she said, I just can't be the person who looks back and says, I didn't do something with the platform that I have. And it's really important to me. And she had just gone through the part of her story where like Taylor Swift is over, right? Like I hate Taylor Swift was trending because you had the big fight with Kanye. And she was saying like, do you know how many people have to hate you all at once for Taylor Swift is over to be trending on Twitter? and then it goes into this part where she talks about how she's going to maybe sacrifice some of her fan base by getting political. So I'm really interested in that that BTS makes a statement, right? They're on, you know, the right side of history instead of being on, you know, you know, on, on the wrong side which we're seeing a lot of people who are either silent or who are choosing to say some pretty odious things. So I think about that a lot, you know, for my own platform. I wonder if you think a lot about it with yours. You know, I mean, you are you are Syrian, you were raised in Canada, you live in France. There are people who might look at your name and assign all sorts of, you know, hate to it. And I'm sort of wondering how you think about your own platform and sort of understanding both the like the good stuff and also those toxic people that are on social media. What do you do with it?
1: I mean, I think by looking at these fandoms, it has made me realize that I don't just want any community, I want the right community. And what people miss, again, when we talk about BTS, when we talk about the context of BTS, and then I'll talk about what I do in my personal life, is that part of the reason why they're so popular is that most Korean um, pop idols are quite, like, there's agencies that recruit, right? And then they put you in a group. It's very much, like, fabricated. And it's a whole industry. And the story of BTS is like, they started with a teeny, teeny, tiny little label that like this guy started. And they, he had this group with these seven members and they were, they really didn't have the resources that normal agencies have around launch and things like that. And part of the thing that made them so unique was that if you listen to some of their videos, by the way, all of their videos are always translated for free by their fans to help international armies or I-armies be able to understand. So you'll see you edited YouTube videos that tell you who sang what and translates it into English, which is amazing. But what you start to see is they they made a lot of, they sang a lot about things that you're not supposed to talk about in South Korean society. They talked about the pressure of being forced into academic rigor. They talked about the lack of opportunities that they face. They talked about the hierarchical societies and some of the uh, challenges that comes from like being rele- relegated to like a certain spot. And that just like, that was the first time that many people had heard that side and they also wrote a lot of their own songs. And so they built a fan base by like being real in a way and by saying messages that at the time wasn't really said. I mean, so yeah. one of the members, Nam June, he has a, a song where he talks about how people were telling him that he's not attractive enough to be an idol singer, that he's not a good enough, to, you know, and they've always taken that and they have always, um, Chat, channeled it into their work. If and that good. was really interesting for me because I thought there was a time when you know you do work with corporate clients and you think okay well should I get political? And like, should I, should I be saying these things and should I be having strong opinions? And well, I mean, should I talk be- to
0: them about K-pop and will they take me straight?
1: <laughs> I mean, that's a whole other thing, right? And going into like certain really buttoned up institutions and being like, let me talk to you about memes um, has been quite the experience. But I think what I've learned is that um, to be able to not be political is in itself a privilege. Mm-hmm. And that I, we're at a point in time where like, if I can say, you know what, I'm going to step back and I'm not really going to talk about this because it doesn't really like that in itself is a a privilege. And I just didn't feel comfortable. Um, I didn't feel comfortable doing that. And it's complicated because these movements are complicated. There are all these rules, all these unwritten rules of how to support and how not to support and what to do and what not to do. And so sometimes you feel like, I don't know what to do and I don't wanna, you know. And so that's also a conversation, but I, I feel I feel like I've gotten a bit more comfortable with um speaking what I feel like is right. And as long as I I mean, I don't really believe in cancel culture. I think it's it's weird and I think it's bizarre and very short-sighted. And I was talking um, we're gonna go on tangents, but I was talking the other day to my friend about do you remember that woman in Central Park, Amy Cooper? Yeah, of course. The one okay. So she was like, she's like 30-something. So she did this terrible thing. There were consequences, as there should be. just mm-hmm. want to be clear. As there should be, there were consequences. But then, okay, so she lost her job. She lost her dog, as she should, frankly. Yeah. But then it was like, okay, okay, now what? We're like, So this per- human being, this person that has done this thing, are we saying, like, w- like, let's be really clear. Are we saying she should never get be able to get a job ever again? Are we saying she should never be integrated in society ever again? Are we Like, what are we actually saying? Because now there's a contradiction where you have one side saying, it's okay to change your mind, normalize changing your mind, Norm- tell people how your views have evolved. But
0: then we're and you're pulling on thing, and you're going to make a mistake, and that's going to be okay. Yeah. And also- and then- also, you're canceled or
1: also we're going to take something that you said out of context or worse. We're going to take something that you said 15 years ago. And then so it's so. But my thing is, I'm not against holding people accountable. I'm not against calling racist racist. I'm not against, you know, being angry and, and pushing for change. What I am against is like, what do we do with all of these people that we've canceled? Right. How do or we reintegrate the back? There's no road back. We essentially, like, it goes back to the prison system, right? Are you punishing? Or are you rehabilitating? Are you reforming? Or are you incarcerating? And if what we're doing is we're essentially, like, giving people digital death penalties where we end their reputation, we make them lose their jobs, we make them lose all of their things, and I'm not saying that there shouldn't be consequences. But all I'm saying is, okay, then what? Then they should never go to university. They should never get another job. And then... What about the impact that you're not seeing? So say a woman, and I, this, I saw this on TikTok, a woman was saying, was spewing really racist things. She was saying really horrible things and she lost her job, okay? You say racist things, you're gonna lose your job, like consequences. Fine. But then I was digging into it and I saw that she had five kids and the youngest kid seemed to be like 10 or 11. And then I thought to myself, okay, if this woman loses her job, what's gonna happen to this kid? What are we saying about him? Is he gonna be able to like eat? Is he, you know? And, and that's when I'm like, well, There has to be a link like if you get punished and if you're held accountable and if there are consequences and you've paid the price, you've lost your job. If we don't create a path for people to come back, to do the work, to face their white fragility, to dismantle racist thinking, if we if there's no path back then aren't we just as terrible? Like, aren't we just making these calls and just like canceling someone? So I started feeling very uncomfortable and I'll be fully clear with you, like very transparent. I've participated in it. I've called for the cancellation of people. And then when I stopped to think about it, I said, well, is this really aligned with my values? There should be consequences. But if somebody has had consequences, are we saying that those consequences are going to last forever? And we live in a world where no one has an attention span anymore. So we just cancel people and we move on. And it's like, well,
0: yeah. And then we forget. That. We don't even we don't even look back to see the harm that was caused. And you know, my I, I I agree with you. I think if you do something that's horrible, you should be canceled, and there should be consequences. But there should it's not like forever, right? Then what happens? And I um I have. I have watched the harm that has been caused to people where the person who has done the harm is just like moved on and they've never looked back and never thought about it. And meanwhile, this person's like trying to pick up the pieces and if you've done harm to a person, it's that person's uh, a- option to do the forgiving. But if they've con- they've moved on and they're gone, they're not even looking back at you. And so my, my question about cancel culture is who gets to decide a, what's bad enough to be canceled, and B, what's good enough then to come back into society? And if we pay, the, if we play the oppression Olympics, like, well, you're gay, but you're a black gay person. Well, you're a transgendered black person. Well, you are a transgendered black person with one leg. Like, at some point, like somebody's always going to have it worse, right? And so, who, 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 how do we decide who the one is that gets to like bless you and like you can come back to society now? And we're giving, I feel like we're giving into this mob mentality this internet mob mentality so it's like you know my son a couple days ago was saying like oh well judy garland wore blackface in a movie in the 1930s she's canceled i'm like well judy garland also was working you know at a time when that was being done by a lot of people not saying it was right but it's being done by a lot of people and she was working within a studio system where if she didn't do it they were like Next young, next pretty young thing. And it was like, she need, like, that was her career. And was that going to be the hill she died on or not? And do we judge her by today's standard based on the decisions she make giving all of that then? Like, who gets to decide, right? How does she get to come back? She's dead, right? Like, how does, like, so mm-hmm. I think this whole, it's, I think it's a very dangerous and slippery slope, the cancel culture, that I think we need to have a more of a, like a, a reconciliation and reformation yeah. culture than yeah. than just canceling someone straight out.
1: And people forget, like, I, you know, if you watch sitcoms from like five years ago, yeah. many sitcoms have not aged. Well, well you Friends, know, they have, friends they, is terrible. I mean, right? Friends is terrible. Friends is, is there are episodes that are horrible. There are so many things. And so then people are like, well, they should know better, but it's like, no, the culture evolves too. So for me, I mean, I was recently seeing what was happening with like Jimmy Kimmel. And like, I saw every time I see Jimmy Kimmel or X person is canceled. I'm just like, God, what now, you know? I'm like afraid and to he, click on the link. <laughs> yeah, me too. But I looked and it was something from like 10 years ago. And again, there should be consequences and there should be apologies, but If somebody did something 10 years ago and we're telling people that it's okay to normalize changing your opinion and that in order to dismantle these systems, you have to change your opinion. And if he hasn't done anything since in 10 years, then it's sort of like, I don't know, I just get really confused. And I say this as somebody who you know, I'm white passing, but I am an immigrant, I'm Syrian. I have had people say all sorts of things to me. I've had people be ask me, oh, you're from Syria? Did you come to Europe on a boat? Oh, are all Syrians refugees? Like I have, I've been pulled aside at airports for secondary screenings. Like, so, but the thing is, it's just like the attitudes change over time. And I, there's no reconciliation because the way that we create outrage culture and the way that we create technology and social media is that we're constantly looking for the next hit of stimulation so we don't care anger fuels a lot more clicks than reconciliation and so we're going to get to the next anger the next anger the next anger and then nobody's reading nobody's taking the nuance nobody is thinking about the impacts nobody's following up we're just like creating this trail of digital destruction And so we don't even we don't even follow up anymore. And then I think to myself, well, okay, like you can't just blame the technology. At some point, we have to turn to us as the users and we have to say, like, is this technology aligned with the type of life I want with the values that I have? Can I still use a platform like Facebook if they continue to make problematic decisions around, you know, promoting white supremacy? Because at some point as a user, at what point do I become complicit if I keep participating? Yes. So it's, I think we have to have these hard questions and ask, have these hard conversations, but and have these big talks. But the problem is, is that nobody has the attention span. And we just go from next to next to next to next. Right. And then it's like, we're moving so fast, but these changes are happening and we're not seeing them. And that's really concerning to me.
0: It's really concerning. So I, I could talk to you all day long, um, but we're coming up on an hour. So I, even though I had to, The technology issues in the middle, but we should, so we should bring this to a close where you have a great platform. You bring so many interesting and diverse um, ideas and articles and memes and everything into my world. Where can people find you so that you can help bring it into their world too?
1: Uh, sure. I'm fushi on Instagram and we're half Fush on pretty much every other platform. So, uh, you know, pick the platform of your choice. We'd love to connect with people. Thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to have this conversation. It was like so nice to skip all the small talk and get into the good stuff.
0: <laughs> yeah. I just, can you imagine like if we did small talk, we'd waste so much time.
1: That's very true.
0: Awesome. I will talk to you on Monday.
1: A <laughs> regular Monday. Monday talk. Okay.
0: Definitely. Bye. <laughs> bye.